Hello, this is Andrew Brewer. I'm your host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast, brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Today, I have Dr. Aaron Sainer as our guest. Um, very uh, grateful that she would uh, come on and appear and and talk to us about her journey. And uh, Dr. Sainer comes from a what I understand is a very small town and it was a part of our um, health careers program um, of the AHEC. Um, we do some K-12 programs and she was a part of that and, and really, um, I guess, solidified, and we'll talk more about that, um, solidified her, her interest in healthcare, care and, and, and was part of her journey to become an MD. And uh, so let's just get started there and um, you know, fill in any gaps that I left out and tell us about your journey from small rural NC and into um, being a dyed-in-the-wool deacon and, um, you know, where you are today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat a little bit about my story. Um, so I grew up um, sort of my parents were from Wilkes County, grandparents in Boomer, North Carolina, very small town. Um, so I spent a lot of my childhood there. Um, very fond memories of that time. And, you know, I lived with my parents in Yadkin County. So again, um, another small town from one to another. Um, and, you know, I think back about that time um, and my mom was kind of that primary uh, cheerleader for me early on. She um, worked in the medical field um, kind of really instilled that interest in me from an early age. And, you know, from that time, it was she was kind of my my head cheerleader, but everyone in that community kind of rallied around me and really helped me kind of shape shape the path from early on. Um, so what was what role did your your mom play in healthcare? So she is um, a genetic technologist. So she does uh, takes kind of blood and bone marrow samples and does karyotyping. Um, kind of in the lab portion of the genetic um, evaluations. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And what what percentage? I mean, do you do mostly clinical with patients, or do you do any research yourself? So um, that's actually something that's a little bit in flux right now. Um, I would say going forward, I'm going to be sixty to seventy percent clinical, um, and then the remainder will be sort of educational. Um, in resident med student teaching um, with some portion of, of research as well. And, and you, you mentioned uh, in your profile that you, your special interests include nutrition, research and education, obesity medicine, preventative medicine and lifestyle management, um, complementary and integrative medicine. So those are all a lot of hot topics these days with our lifestyle uh, disease states that we have uh, you know, are suffering from in America, let's just say that. And, um, you know, tell us some of your your hope for uh, and, and your interest in that. And, and where do you see that going um, now that we're hopefully on the tail end of a pandemic and people are actually paying attention to their personal health and wellness and lifestyle and things like that. So just riff on that for a little bit. Sure. Um, well, I guess I'll start more so from the educational aspect to start. Um, you know, surprisingly, nutrition education is not a huge part of medical education right now. Um, and, you know, you may know people who have been in medical school or other health professional schools and don't get a lot of training on nutrition. And so, you know, part of my big passion, you know, in addition to research and, you know, 
how different models impact patient outcomes is, you know, how do we get this to be um, a core part of our curriculum as we train the next generation of healthcare providers? And so, you know, part of my efforts um, are in curriculum development um, at present to try to see, you know, how do we start teaching family medicine residents? How do we expand this out to the medical school? Um, and, you know, then from that point, how do we branch out and kind of start this education in the community? Because truly, we have to have a handle on it first um, in order to be able to make the most meaningful impact in the community. So that's kind of where I'm starting um, to dig into a little bit. Well, do you find resistance? I mean, I think what we call contemporary medicine is very heavily uh focused on the prescription pad or e-scripts now, I guess, um, you, you know, is there a resistance in sort of the, you know, the, the traditional uh, conventional medicine education? Is there any resistance to focus on lifestyle and nutrition versus just what, what, what pill cures, what symptoms? Um, no, I don't think there's necessarily a resistance. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, we talk about first line therapies, right? What do we go to first for diabetes, hypertension? Um, and it's always lifestyle, you know, but it's kind of a catchphrase a little bit. It's like, oh, lifestyle, work on your diet and exercise. But how do we how do we effectively coach people on that? How, and, you know, in primary care, we have 15 minute visits um, most of the time. So how do we make the most of that time? And I think that that's where we run into a little bit of an issue um, I think people wish they had more time. Um, I think people wish that they had a little bit more of um, a grounding in that knowledge to be able to communicate it effectively and efficiently. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily a resistance to it. I think it's just there's a gap that needs to be filled so that we can kind of execute that more effectively. Well, would you also would, or would you agree that there is some sort of uh uh, expectation from a patient that you're the doctor and you're going to just give me something to make me feel better versus I don't want to be lectured to or coached right now on lifestyle change. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I can't tell you how many times um, patients will come into the room and they'll be like, I know, doc, my weight, it's not good. You don't have to tell me. And you know, so a, a part of that comes, you know, falls back onto us to kind of recreate that narrative a little bit. It's like, no, I'm I'm here to help. Tell, talk to me about what barriers you're having. Talk to me about what else is going on in your life right now. And, you know, how can I help? You know, if you're not ready to have that whole conversation, you're not ready for medication, that's okay. You know, maybe it's you want one small change to make. So maybe instead of drinking three Pepsis today, maybe we can just cut it back to one a day. You know, so I really try to partner with patients on what is that small change that we can focus on and focus on that one thing until that becomes a routine. And then we can go on to the next thing. Yeah, tiny habits. I'm I'm enrolled in a health and wellness coaching certification program. So I'm all about that wanting to be a healthcare extender in that world where you have the 15 minute visit, but you can say, well, you know, there's these things out there called health coaches and, and, and they'll gladly work on identifying those goals that you can create routines and, and healthy habits from. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, and and I, I do feel like there's this swelling and growth of awareness and, and desire out there that people want to get healthy. I see it in the gym. I see it, you know, in daily life. I hear people talking about all the different lifestyle changes. So I'm going to try to relate that to a question <laughs> um, back to rural, small rural communities and healthcare. care. Um, so 
just, you know, let's touch on things like, you know, the challenges in rural healthcare. I mean, you know, going back to your boomer roots, um, you know, what are the social determinants that you see? How has healthcare changed in those rural communities and how do you see it evolving over the next, you know, decade? Sure. Um, well, I guess to start with that nutrition connection, which I think is a, is a good place to start. Um, I mean, I think about you know access to food. You know, there are huge food deserts, um, and that really brings up a lot of challenges for people who, you know, may otherwise really want to make um, you know changes in their diet uh, to start off with. Um, so then the question becomes: Is how do I get access? You know, to these quality foods? Am I having to drive 15 to 20 minutes to the grocery store? Do I have enough money to be able to do that on a weekly basis or a bi-weekly basis? Um, or am I someone who, you know, I don't really have access to transportation that well. I'm having to depend on someone else. You know, there's a convenience store right down the road and they have a limited selection, but that's really what I'm able to manage right now. Um, so I think that's something that um, is a huge, it's a huge barrier for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's also something as providers we have to take into account, right? Like I can talk to you about shopping the perimeter of the grocery store and the importance of fresh fruits and vegetables. But if you're not in a place where you can get to that, then we kind of have to regroup and kind of recreate that conversation. Um, so I think especially, you know, in the boomer community, I'm really happy to say I have um, an uncle who I love dearly, who he still works out in the garden. He grows everything under the sun and takes it to the farmer's market each Saturday. So I think efforts like that really make a huge difference in kind of bridging that gap. Yeah. You know, when I have this kind of idealistic view of rural life that everyone has the garden and goats and chickens and you just, <laughs> you know, when you're hungry, you just go out and pick and you prepare and things like that. But the reality is as, as that way of life is, has decreased and people still find themselves in areas where they don't have access to healthy food, um, you know, that that ideal vision I have is shattered <laughs> and, 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 you know, they go to the convenience store and cigarettes are cheap and alcohol and fat, sugar and salt are yeah. all plentiful. And, and there's just all the cues are there to, well, that's what I have. That's what I'm going to eat. And, and we lose that ethos of, you know, was it uh farm to table kind of, yeah. uh, of way of life. And, and so, yeah, I don't know what my question was there, but <laughs> Well, let's, let's talk about social determinants. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, anything else? What have you seen change over the years in, in, in small community as you go back and visit, um, you know, as far as clinical access and, and, you know, education and things like that that are going on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one, one thing that I have noticed is there's more of an effort to get more primary care providers in the area. Um, and I think, you know, uh, our department and Atrium Health Workforce Baptist has done a great job of kind of pushing to increase that presence in the community, which is huge. Um, there's still some limitations in terms of, you know, time or travel time for, you know, a lot of people to get to those regions, but at least there's um, an increasing presence. Um, you know, I think one of, <laughs> a cousin of mine actually, um, started his own business. Um, it's called Surge and he, you know, is working on medical transport. So he's working on building a medical transport network so that those people in the boomer community and kind of the surrounding communities can have a means of transportation 
um, to get to those doctor visits and to kind of bridge that gap a little bit. So I've been very, very proud of him and, um, you know, just a lot of those smaller efforts that are popping up that are really helping to bridge those gaps in a, in a meaningful and huge way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I see, um, as you were talking, I was just thinking of the 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 paradox of all the talk about increasing access in rural environments and, and eliminating social determinants or social drivers of, of poor health. And uh, then the paradox of healthcare is mostly for profit. So you have the business, where are the businesses are going to locate, where the people are, where the money is. So, um, you know, th- those are some big forces and factors that prevent the you know growth and and capacity and quality of care in those areas and and you know if you could talk a little bit about your share of the health fair um, I know you were instrumental of you know of creating that and and how that's impact what what some of the things you've noticed about that yeah so um, that was an amazing opportunity um, that I was very 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 grateful for Northwest Northwest AHEX, um involvement in that. Um, So kind of built it off the model here in Winston-Salem about, you know, how do we increase access to um, preventative screening um, and some of that counseling and education um, for, um, you know, chronic conditions. And so um, I was very fortunate to be able to kind of set up that model in um, a community building that has been kind of um, uh, a bedrock in that community, which has been awesome. So it, it was a great experience because, you know, we got to kind of grow that um, that space together. So it was not that we put everything together and came and kind of set up in the community center, but every, everyone in the community was also involved in kind of creating that success for that event um, that went on for two years. Um, unfortunately, you know, residency got a little busy. And so I'm, I'm just now getting to the point where I'm transitioning back to hopefully being able to restart that. But um, it really was, it really was an awesome experience to be able to see how my community here in Winston-Salem would support me and go with me and that community in Boomer, how those communities met and really made some some lasting change. So that was an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm glad to have had that opportunity. We use the word community in there a couple of times. And I, that's where I think this scales out um, into all the regions is that, um, you know, partnering with community centers or even, you know, uh, you know, empty retail uh, locations in the community get together and just with, you know, their own volition, create opportunities for education and, and maybe culinary, you know, cooking classes and skills and recipe sharing and also walking groups and, Absolutely. you know, blood pressure check stations and A1C and all those things. I mean, I think that's what uh, these types of efforts like the Share the Health may inspire. And I see that being, you know, a way to catalyze the growth of, you know, really self-reliant communities to create those for themselves and and. So that's a good model, I think. Absolutely. You know, I, and I will I will say that another model that we're seeing that is becoming quite effective is the concept of group medical visits. So, you know, you're meeting in an office, you're one on one and that those conversations are so meaningful. But if you think about the reach that one provider can have in a group visit model, 
it's exponential. Um, and so we've been very fortunate to have, you know, weight management group visits, diabetes group visits, um, smoking cessation group visits here, um, and kind of building that model here within the department um, in Winston. And so one of the things I'm really looking forward to is hopefully taking that model and being able to kind of transition that back um, to the boomer community, hopefully. Um, and so while it wouldn't be quite as large scale as the health fair, you know, for those very specific chronic conditions, it would be an opportunity for me to be able to kind of extend that reach to, to more people, but also while keeping that opportunity for some one-on-one -on -one interaction as well. Yeah, I, I've struggled with this as, you know, thinking about the health coaching model is, um, you know, I hear success in group visits is the, is the, you know, the concept of scaling it and, and maximizing the time and effort and to reach as many people as, as possible. And what, you know, what you just said sort of resonated in, in, you know, sort of disease states or lifestyle specific behaviors that can be approached with groups because, you know, tobacco cessation, yeah, we all want to quit, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, obesity management and those kind of things. So I, I, I see that as a good model to, to scale that more. I just think that it, it, there needs to be some additional uh, level that's reached to really get, get out that messaging. And that's kind of, I'm going to go on a soapbox a little bit here is, is kind of what was missing the last two years of the conversation of what keeps us safe and healthy. Um, you know, we were told this kind of very specific uh, regimen that did not include, you know, watching what you eat, exercising, getting sleep, staying hydrated, you know, vitamin D and those kinds of things. So I, I think those messages uh, need to be upgraded quite a bit. And I think those, you know, those environments, those group settings you're talking about, share the health fair, those are great opportunities to get that message out. And do you, in your teaching, in your clinic, do you see people, I mean, I feel like it's starting to happen. People are starting to notice. What do you, what do you see? Absolutely. I think, you know, from a group of providers, we're starting to reach that critical mass. We're beginning to see that, you know, some of those areas where we've been doing the same thing over and over again, it's not having the effect that we want. So, you know, we're starting to reach that critical mass of, okay, let's regroup and think about how we change this. Um, and so, you know, even in my own practice and, you know, along with some of my colleagues, we're really beginning to see um, patients really dig into their own challenges on a very personal level. Um, and so we're really able to kind of connect and see that change start to happen um, in front of our eyes. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, are there medications involved? Of course, you know, are there setbacks? Of course. Um, but overall, I really do feel kind of the momentum shifting a little bit, especially in our practice. And I'm sure, you know, as I've talked to other providers from other states, um, even we're really starting to see that push. And so I think now is the time that we really dig in our heels to keep keep the momentum going. Now, how would you react to this statement that, um, okay, as a health coach, I'm the guy um, who you would come to to get the, you know, coaching and, and find your why and get your motivation higher and, and, and collapse the field of potential uh, actions you could take to stuff that's realistic and, and, and will help you achieve your goals. Whereas the doctor's role is to tell you the hard, tough love, like you need to lose weight. You're way overweight. You are not okay. You know, here's a pill that's going to alleviate some of these symptoms, but you got to make some change. I, I, I still think that 
there's a role for that. <laughs> and I don't necessarily want to see that go away. You know, the hard truth from the, you know, the person who's studied all their life to become this expert to tell you what they see in no uncertain terms and, and not to sugarcoat it, not to soft pedal it. And I know people are all worried about people's feelings and stuff, but I think the doctor has a unique role in that hierarchy to say, Hey, you, you got to do better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I think it's all in how, how do we, how do we phrase it? Right. So I, I am a strong believer that, you know, I, I don't have to be paternalistic about it, so to speak, um, you know, but and also, I will say, you'd be surprised. Patients know. <laughs> Patients are very self-aware. They know They know when they come in the office, they'll say, Doc, I know my A1C is going to be up, right? My blood pressure is up. I know it's going to be up. My weight's up. I know. And so there is that awareness. So there are some people that just don't have an awareness of it. And that's the point where, of course, I'm duty-bound to say, hey, you know, I really think this is what is the root of a lot of these things that you're experiencing. And so I think in in some ways it's our job to kind of connect that experience that they're having to what we see as the root cause. That's part of it. And then the other part is to say, you know, hey, these are the things down the line that I'm worried about. And I want to help you prevent getting ever getting to that point. I'm here to help if we get to that point, of course, but I want to make sure that you don't get to that point. And so I think when patients see that you're really invested in their health and not so much being like a number, like you need to be this weight, we need to have your A1C be this, you need your blood pressure to be this. Those are all important values, but I really step back and take the time to explain why. Like, why do I care about this? All of these things additively can affect your health, your heart health, can increase your risk of stroke. You know, and I kind of lay that out for them. So, yes, I still have to have those tough conversations, but I think we really have to be careful not to just rely on numbers, but to really paint a picture of why do I care and why should you care? No, that's great. I'm glad you added the care part in there, you know, because you are human and you you do have that care. And then you just said numbers. Um, And so is there any parallels? Okay, so. Let's go back to initiatives in education where I forget the the actual act or whatever, but it's basically teachers uh, salaries and opportunities are going to be based on the outcomes of their students as measured by standardized tests, let's say. Mm -hmm. Now, this whole uh, quality, uh, you know, uh, quality benchmarks in Medicaid and Mm -hmm. and. Results based accountability is the new phrase I'm hearing. Um, you know, are those kind of the same things? Are they going to result in just numbers at the outset and sort of dehumanize the patients? And, and it's for the doctor's benefit of compensation and return on investment and all that. Or do you see that as a good thing that's helping change and transform practices to really focus on healthy behavior change? Boy, isn't that a tough question. <laughs> um, I, I think that there is some value in that um, because, you know, it really does force providers to pay close attention um, because at the end of the day, those metrics do matter. They aren't everything by any means, but they do matter. And so I think on one end, you know, if I'm somebody that's a little bit more lenient with it, like, oh, it's fine, you know, it might make me say, okay, let's let's hone in on this a little bit more. But on the other hand, you know, you 
run the risk of kind of, as you mentioned, like dehumanizing things a little bit if you're not careful. Because if my mindset is like, I need these metrics and I'm focusing on that and the payout that that's going to give me, sometimes I forget to talk to that patient that's sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, perhaps I'm not spending as much time digging into, you know, what are their barriers and really talking to the person. And I'm focused on, well, you need, you didn't get your A1C down to where I needed it to be. So, you know, let's keep going. Or I might say, hmm, your A1C is not down. I'm going to put another medicine on board and see if we can get that down. As opposed to taking a step back and say, all right, what, what are the real barriers here? You know, do I need to add another medicine or do we have time to kind of work through this? So um, I, I can definitely see pros and cons um, of that particular system. Um, so it will be interesting to see kind of how things how things play out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems like sometimes the incentives create perverse behaviors or I, what's a better way of saying it? Unintended consequences, I think. Absolutely. And we've seen that in the education system. And, and I think and, and one of the things that got me thinking about that, I've, you know, this whole notion of concierge medicine mm. um, and I've seen advertisements like and it shows you how you qualify. If you weigh more than 250 pounds, they won't take you. You know, so they're actually selecting patients based mm-hmm. on their health status because the pool of money is shared across. I mean, it's the insurance model, but it's taken privately. Yeah. And there's, and 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 the way they manage the expenses is they only bring in fairly healthy people. So I mean, you know, and then that leaves the very unhealthy to fend for themselves. Um, so that's a scary thing. But it it may be an incentive to, you know, someone says, I really want to join this, but I've got to lose 30 pounds, you know, and it could be the incentive for them to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very interesting, interesting perspective for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, as with all things, there there are some benefits that can be positive or negative motivators. And so, you know, is there a place for that model? Sure, I, I think so. But I, I definitely understand that, you know, chronic care management um it's taxing. It is. It's taxing. And um, it takes a lot of effort. Um, You know, there's a lot of financial strain that comes along with that. And so, you know, at at the end of the day, it just kind of comes down to, you know, are you are you that person that's going to kind of dig in in that area or not? And I I think it takes all types to make this health system work. Um, So that's just another another consideration for sure. Well, I think there's there's the paradox of a profit-driven healthcare system uh, that you know, you know the the sickest percentage of the population creates the highest percentage of healthcare costs. But if you're making money, you're like, yeah, bring them. <laughs> you yeah. know, ver- ver- versus the other side is like empower more community health workers to do health coaching, um, increase the uh, physician extenders to do group visits and home visits and mm-hmm. and really work with clients to improve their health. And, and there's not really a great billing structure for that. It's not really a profitable uh, endeavor for, exactly. uh, other than the betterment of humanity. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the profit incentive sometimes perverts the, the, you know, what we do as a health system, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to, you know, we, we touched on some, Big issues. Let's bring it back down. So talk talk, talk us, to us about your experience with Northwest AHEC. Um, you know, in high school, I guess, uh, you started uh, your, your involvement through some of our programs. Tell us about that. Um, so 
I started off, you know, in um, health occupations um, in high school and really enjoyed that time. Um, then kind of going into college, transitioned into, you know, um, you know, biology degree um, and kind of really started digging in a little bit. Um, had an opportunity to do some kind of health um, related volunteering during that time. But, you know, really where my experience with AHEC really took off was during medical school um, and having the opportunity to be one of the um, coordinators for one of the um, health career um, camps that was two or three weeks, I believe, at the time. Um, and it was interesting because it was a lot of work to organize, but I found that I had such a passion for it. It was so many hours of work, but so rewarding at the same time. And the thing that surprised me about that experience was that I learned so much from these high school students. You know, I thought, you know, oh, we're putting this together. It'll be great to teach them. But I mean, gosh, they really taught me. Um, and I think that experience really, really kind of solidified the importance of mentorship and really put me in a position to work on how do I become a better mentor? How do I reach, you know, high school students, even middle, middle school students to try to inspire them and instill in them, you know, this passion for healthcare. care. Uh, so um, having having involvement with that was was absolutely crucial um, and really pushed me more toward family and community medicine um, at the time. Um, and then, you know, from there, that kind of transitioned into Boomer Share the Health Fair. Um, I think it was about a year later. So so you were pretty much certain primary care and family medicine, family and community medicine early on, or did you have interest in any other specialty? So I went into medical school thinking pediatrics 100 um, percent and got to my third year of medical school my internal medicine rotation. Um, and interestingly enough, some of the diabetes management was really what drew me in. I'm like, wow, not only do I like taking care of adults, but I like having this conversation. Um, I, I distinctly remember this encounter um, as a medical student where I explained to a patient why it was so important for them to check their blood sugars by finger stick versus waiting on the A1C and how, you know, the blood sugars are a snapshot that we can kind of keep um, keep track of. And the A1C is kind of like a, a little video clip from the past three months. And, you know, seeing that patient, seeing it click, um, mm -hmm. that was amazing. And so, you know, from that point forward, you know, being in the emergency department and, you know, these various settings, you know, there was kind of this phrase of like, we're going to defer that to the primary care physician, defer to PCP. And I found myself being so frustrated with that, like, no, I want to help this patient. I want to talk about this now. So, um, all signs pointed to family medicine pretty much from <laughs> from that point forward. So, um, and I, it's a decision that I'm I'm glad that I made every day. Now, when you're in the clinic and you're working with patients, are there ever any moments? Or I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but are there moments that just stick out to you? You're like, oh God, I can't wait to go teach someone else this what I just learned. Or or are there things? How do you incorporate your experience in the clinic to the classroom? I guess is the question. Oh, definitely. So um, I, as my academic position has kind of grown, I have the opportunity to kind of translate that into um, lectures um, and small group talks. And so um, I, I didn't initially plan it this way, but so much of my um, didactic time has been kind of focused on what does the literature say about this topic and how have I seen this in clinical practice? So um, I'm actually putting together a talk um, as we speak, uh, talking about how 
continuous glucose monitors can be such a powerful tool in, um, you know, coaching patients and also kind of facilitating behavioral change. Um, so that is a huge part of what I'll be talking about um, here next month. So I, I definitely find that I'm constantly trying to connect the thread from, you know, the clinic to the educational realm. Yeah, I I think that, you know, we talk about evidence-based and, you you know, you, you see right in front of your eyes when you're dealing with, with patients. So you have those anecdotes to share, which I think are super valuable in, in medical education. Um, uh, have you ever come across uh, things? Okay, there's this phrase, uh, literally false, metaphorically true. Um, are there any things that patients tell you that are just make your logical brain explode, but then you think about it and you're like, well, there's some truth to that in the message versus the actual, you know, the actual thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like diet or, you know, things people do or, or, or old timey, you know, uh, old timey cures and things like that. I'm I'm trying to think. I'm sure there are so many examples, but like nothing is coming to the top of my mind at the moment. But, you know, in in general, there are (laughs) there are some cases where I'm like, I'm not sure that's exactly how things work, but I'm, I'm never quick to discount that because at the end of the day, what a patient believes in and what gets the result is truly all that matters as long as it's not harmful. Um, I'm sure there have been like the first thing that comes to mind now is just like some various supplements. And I'm like, they'll bring it in and they'll say, Doc, I heard this works great. And I've been taking it and it's been helping and everything's great. And I'm like, I look at the supplement, I look at their med list and I'm like, well, I can't see any reason why this is harmful to you. <laughs> I don't have the data to say this is hundred percent um, leading to the result you're looking for or what you're seeing. But if I don't see any harm in it, I'm okay with it because at the end of the day, the patient just has to buy into it to get to the end result. So, um, I, yeah, I guess I would say supplements are kind of the biggest, the hottest thing, um, that comes up in that way. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, there's a couple of things to see if I can get to, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the way I see supplements because I take supplements. I mean, not a whole lot, but, you know, I do like beets powder and super greens and all that. And I see it as like nutritional insurance because I eat healthy, but I still have days where I don't eat as healthy. And, and those kinds of things are just. And so, you know, what do clinical trials measure against uh, first and foremost with any drug? It's the placebo effect, right? So there's a lot of power of belief in things we do. And I think I was getting kind of at that with that metaphorically true question. Um, So I appreciate your feedback on that. And there was something else you said that now has escaped me. So I'll try to think of a different question. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I guess one other thing I would say is that, um, you know, there's also so much that we can only learn so much through research, right? Like in terms of thinking about things in an evidence-based manner, there are only certain things you can do randomized control trials on, you know, there's only so much information we can get. And so, you know, in some cases I'm like, well, the data doesn't show this, but, you know, anecdotally or from the information that I see, I mean, yes, we have vitamin deficiencies, you know, nobody gets enough potassium or magnesium. So I'm fine with you supplementing that, you know, that makes sense. Um, So, you know, there are those areas that I'm like, you know, if I'm solely relying on the top tier of research, you know, we're missing out on a whole lot of benefit. 
I think that's there's a misconception in science because everyone you know follow the science you know mm-hmm. as if there's only one science. But um, the you know science tells us what we see and gives us signals of what may or may not be closer to the truth. But it's science is ever changing and it's not the truth. So I, I appreciate you you know you you uh, sort of alluding to that like there's there's things that tell us certain signals that we should pay attention to and therefore and then what's the end of it? just about every scientific journal is like you know thoughts on further research you know this yeah. isn't this isn't conclusive we don't just now know the truth and we don't we can just set it aside and go that's it exactly um, so it, it's ever evolving and that's the great thing about science is that you know to, to have multiple eyes on it and questioning and, and, and redoing it to make sure it's repeatable. and Exactly. And there are always limitations, always limitations. Exactly. Well, um, what is the future for Aaron Sainers and, and producing more like you? Because you're a beautiful human. You've done great things and, and you've taken what you've learned from, you know, the, the institution of, of, higher learning and you brought it back to the community it's sort of like you've slayed the dragon and you're sharing the gold and and you know how do you inspire future uh leaders and educators and clinicians in healthcare oh first i appreciate that (laughs) but i think you know when i sit back and think about this great opportunity that i have to um be transitioning into a position as an assistant professor um, you know, it. I start by thinking all the way back to the small town, middle school and high school students. And I think about how, you know, there were obstacles at every at every transition point for me. There were people that said, you know, I don't know if you want to do that or I don't know if that's something that, you know, you're, you're cut out for. Um, and then I think about those people that said, wait a minute. If this is what you want to do, let me help you. Let me show you. Um, you know, let me show you some things you can try to help get you to that next that next phase. And so, you know, I think looking back, if I had had someone in my position saying, hey, you want to be a doctor? That's fantastic. Let's talk. Um, so I, I see myself going all the way back, even to middle school and saying, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if somebody says a doctor, I say, OK, let's see how we can get you there. Um, how can I support you? Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I think about, um, which is somewhat related, is that, you know, in medicine right now, you know, we have a shortage of primary care physicians. So that's something we have to be thinking about. But I'm also thinking about what it means to bring more underrepresented minorities into the field of medicine. Um, and, you know, I think it's a very um, humbling reality that, you know, me transitioning into this position it, there aren't the percentage of, you know, young African-American female assistant professors in family medicine is small. You branch that out into, you know, any field of medicine, also small. Um, and so I think that I, I take this position very seriously because, you know, there are young um, men and women of color that are looking to pursue this path, but they feel like they don't have the resources or they don't have that guidance. Um, And I think that is so important. And I think that is really where it starts to be able to transition into a population of healthcare providers that look like the communities that we serve is we, we have to take the time to go back and we have to build these communities and these systems that really support, um, you know, every phase as they kind of go through this process. So, 
that that's really where my passion lies. Um, you know, the the nutrition, the education, the patient care, that is all super important. Um, but again, that last piece of trying to reach more small town, you know, students um, and more underrepresented minorities, how do I help you get here? Um, if you want to work beside me, how do I help you get here to work beside me? Well, that's where I think, you know, you have a real minority status in that you went to the town to get your education and practice, but you still maintain roots in your local community where you grew up. Um, that's rare because I think a lot of people, A, want to get the hell out of where they grew up. <laughs> and B, if they, if it's a small place, they uh, it's hard to start a private practice now. I mean, the you know, we had a conversation last week with a 40-year veteran OBGYN uh, uh, physician, and, you know, he was just saying it's almost impossible uh, to start a private practice, especially in a rural area now, yeah. because you're, you're responsible for billing, you're responsible for insurance, you're responsible for uh, medical malpractice, all those things that have just become such a burden. And then at the end of the day, you're not making the money that you thought you would in that yeah. in that profession. So it's a real disincentive. And so people either want to specialize mm -hmm. um, or if they practice in primary care uh, in a big city and a big health system where they ha they all that other stuff is taken care of and they can just see patients all day. So yeah. um, any thoughts to add to that? Um, I mean, I definitely I definitely see the challenges, um, you know, especially from that perspective, going out into private practice. But I mean, even from my standpoint in academia, like there's still the challenges of, you know, protecting our time and how our time gets funded and, you know, I'm very fortunate to be in a department that is very, very invested and supportive of com the community aspect of medicine. So, you know, that's something that going forward I have, you know, covered as a part of my job duties, but that's not the case in a lot of places. And so then it becomes, you know, people are, you know, branching out on their own time to do this. And, you know, that's something I would like to see change is, you know, these are very important um, these are very important initiatives and very important issues that we're trying to address. And so I think it's so crucial that we do everything in our power to make sure that people people have that time protected because I mean, this is where the change is going to happen. And so if we have the support, we can do it. Well said. And I, I agree 100 percent with that. I think it, it, there has to be the incentives to to encourage that and not just be bottom line driven, um, I think. So. Uh, Shifting a little bit to technology, I'm sure you've done some telehealth. Um, um, so maybe talk a little bit about the differences you notice between in-person patient visit versus telehealth and, and how closely that that emulates. And then also, what other technology have you seen come along since you've been, uh, you know, in school and practicing, you know, through throughout your education that, um, that, that really blows you away and some of the stuff on the horizon that you're really, really excited about? Yeah. So telehealth overall, I think, has been amazing. And I say that because it gives us an opportunity for those patients that have access, it gives us an opportunity to have more touch points with them. You know, you, you think about the time that it takes for them to drive here and get roomed and, you know, be seen and then check out. You know, that whole process is really streamlined in telehealth um, because I can sit down and when the time comes, we connect, we talk for that entire 15 minutes if we need to. Um, 
there's still the importance of needing those touch points in person because you know there are a lot of there are a lot of things that go unspoken that you don't really pick up on um, in a telehealth environment. And then, you know, there's obviously information that we gather from being in the same room with a person. Um, but it, it really helps streamline things. And I think uh, patients really appreciate it because, you know, at the end of the day, if you've been checking your blood sugars, everything's been going okay. You can show me that log face to face on the screen. That's really all we have to do for that. Um, and so I think it has been very beneficial in that regard to just making sure that we're in in some ways increasing access to care, but also just increasing those touch points. So I think for the chronic care model, it's hugely important. And I hope that the compensation and the like will be maintained um, for that reason. Um, some pitfalls I see happening is, you know, you have that respiratory complaint and, you know, you come up on the screen and you're talking and I'm like, well, I can't hear your lungs. I can't see the back of your throat. I don't exactly know what's going on here. And so sometimes there's that little bit of a disconnect where it's like, well, it sounds like this. Am I going to send in antibiotics and steroids and inhalers without being able to hear? And, and that's a that's a judgment call. That's a judgment call um, that has a whole lot of other factors that go into it. But I think. Um, the risk that you have in some of those cases is just kind of going into this algorithmic approach um, to the care, um, which is, which, you know, can work, but it's definitely a, a limitation, I think, from a telehealth standpoint. Um, switching gears to kind of technology and what's promising in the future, um, there are some platforms in development, and forgive me, I forget the name, but there are platforms that kind of incorporate, you know, health coaches, um, medical providers, um, behavioral health um, providers, um, incorporating, you know, lab data, vi um, vitals, educational materials that kind of shift based on, you know, the client's goals or the patient's goals and kind of just this huge interface that kind of combines all of that information. Um, I think I think that's phenomenal and I think that's going to be that's going to be kind of the new wave. Um, so I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, there's some talk about even trying to integrate the electronic health system and have that information pushed back and forth. Um, so I think that's really exciting, especially when it comes to lifestyle, um, lifestyle practices. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, continuous glucose monitors, I think, are amazing. And the fact that we can have that data shared, it's continuous and it can be shared between patient and provider. So I can pull up that chart and I can say, yeah, well, I see this day you had this big bump. What was going on there? <laughs> you know, and then we can kind of talk through it a little bit, you know. And again, it's kind of like increasing those touch points. You know, on the one hand, somebody can eat really well for three weeks before they come and see me and their A1C can be better than their actual glucose has been for the past three months, you know. But it gives me a chance, more data points and more opportunities to really have that conversation about, OK, how do we how do we work with this to um, to, you know, make it better? And it gives that nice visual representation for me and for the patient. So um, I, I'm very excited about continuous glucose monitoring as, as a part of um, the technology that's, you know, continuing to grow. So the promise of personalized, true personalized medicine is, is becoming more reality. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Well, that's great. And then you mentioned the algorithmic approach. And I think going back to primary care and saying, you know, the ideal of the small town physician uh, of being able to, you know, 
do the Dr. House stuff and figure out, you know, <laughs> that, you know, and really dig deep and draw on multiple sources of experience and information and, and feedback and all that versus the system approach where it's like you follow this algorithm and here's, you know, boom here, you know, and all you're doing is flow charting. So you're not really thinking you're just processing, um, you know, is there any truth to that? statement of of a lot of physicians are getting pushed into algorithmic delivery of of medicine well the thing about it is is that it's the time constraint right if we can if we can streamline these things into an algorithm it saves time right um and and i'm not saying that there isn't a place for algorithms there's absolutely a place especially when it comes to working up some of these complex issues that we have but There's so much of, you know, if you think about how both acute and chronic illnesses develop, it's not a very discrete entity, right? You catch things over time. Things are always in flux and in progress. And at any one point in time, it doesn't necessarily fit an algorithm. So, you know, are you applying this this, um, algorithm to a time point that's appropriate or not? That's a hard judgment call to make. Um, And so, you know, I think the art of medicine is is just as important. Um, and I think algorithms are great tools and we have a lot of tools at our disposal, but I think we have to be careful. And I think that all comes back to the time constraint. And so, you know, in some ways, I think we have to be creative in trying to figure out ways to be more efficient uh, so that we rely less on that um, or we have to push to advocate for more time. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to me to keep the human element and the personal element in, in that, no matter how large scale system that you find yourself in. I think, I think that's so important. Well, shifting gears again, what, what, what do you do for fun, Aaron? Oh man. So, um, I love to cook. I love to cook. I'm, I'm, (laughs) if there's one thing about the past two years is I've had many, many more opportunities to try my hand at some different cuisine. So that's been fun. Um, I'm really big into music. Uh, that has just been a huge, um, kind of comfort in a, especially in a time like this. Um, I do a little bit of writing, something that I hadn't done in a while, but I actually just got back into doing some writing. And again, that is also just so helpful in kind of processing everything that has been going on in medicine and the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm an avid Orange Theory goer. I, <laughs> I I love Orange Theory, so that's uh that's one of my uh, safe havens. Um, that's also good for me. <laughs> so those are the main things, the main things that I do. I'm hoping to get hopefully back to more hiking and doing other things as hopefully these next few months kind of calm down a little bit. All right. Well, so you stay in the zone, stay in the orange zone. Oh, yeah. Here recently, I've been in the red zone, my friend. It's, it's been a while. I'm, <laughs> I'm out of practice. So, <laughs> All right. Be careful which which oils you use in your cooking. That, that I, I, I know. I know. <laughs> well, look, Aaron, I really appreciate your time and, and your lovely person. I'm so thankful and grateful for this chat. And uh, do you have any questions for me before we sign off? I don't think so. I certainly appreciate the opportunity. It's been great getting to chat with you. Well, thank you. Thank you.